podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Reninga, we talk about why Indians don't bat left-handed and other things southpaw. So I thought, why not get on someone who's just written a book about this? Well, at least has this as one of their chapter titles. I am Nathan Lehman, and I am England Cricket's Cricket Intelligence Analyst. This is the job title. And I am the Strategic Consultant for Calcutta Knight Riders. Nathan and Ben Jones have just finished their book, Hitting Against the Spin, and it's basically the book you need to understand how cricket has evolved, and more importantly, how it is currently played now. But I got Nathan on to talk about the history of left-handers, anticipation skills, why off-spinners are good, LBWs, umpires, outswing, and why southpaw batters are better against seam than spin. You have written a new book, and we are going to go all the way through it. And we're going to start with a chapter called Why Indians Don't Bat Left-Handed. But before we get to that, I mean, that just feels like a blog piece from 2009, that title. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely destined to get a lot of hits there. But before we get that, can you take me through the history of left-handed batters in test cricket, please? So for whatever reason, when test cricket first started, there were no left-handed batsmen as such. So for about the first 20 years, all of the innings played by left-handers were essentially by bowlers. And then you get the first left-handers arrive in Test cricket. And from that moment onwards, the sort of the base level of left-handed top-order batsmen runs at between 15 and 25%, and it bounces up and down with a bit of noise in the numbers. But that's the sort of the background level of left-handed batting in test cricket up until the 90s. And uh, so I haven't studied the batters very much because I've been very fixated with left-arm fast bowlers over the last couple of years. What I know of left-arm fast bowlers is, again, there was not a lot of them. And the big difference I always thought with left-arm fast bowlers, so you just talk about the batters being between 15 and 25%, but that's Mm. still more than the amount of left-handers that they were in society at that point. Whereas with left-arm fastballs, it seemed for a long time, it actually like carried the percentage of left-handed people in cricket. And then we basically had this big boom in around the 1980s. Wasam Akram burst a lot of left-arm bowlers around the world, if you want to be a little bit dramatic with it. Um, but essentially, the reason that I was more interested in the bowlers is because that makes sense to me, because if you are a professional batter and you have grown up facing right-arm seam your entire life, Basically, if you can bowl 80 miles an hour and you're a left-arm bowler, chances are you've played a test match, let alone had a decent career. You certainly played professional cricket, whereas that's not the case for right-handers, is it? So there is a natural advantage to left-arm seam bowlers that has always been prevalent. We just didn't have a lot of them to exploit it. Is that fair? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So the difference between batsmen and bowlers is that most bowlers bowl with their dominant hand. So there are exceptions. There are Samit Patels who who throw right-handed and bowl left-handed, but they are a very small percentage of bowlers. Whereas there are a lot of right-handers who bat left-handed, and there are some naturally left-handed people who bat right-handed. So I think that sort of 15 to 25% reflected the rough percentage of people in cricket who batted left-handed, regardless of what their dominant hand was. And if you look at the number of bowlers who bat left-handed, then the figure is still about the same. So the the change has come in batsmen who bat left-handed, and it's exacerbated at at the top levels. And in terms of bowling, you're exactly right. They've always had a a natural advantage, and now they're overrepresented, as they are in lots of sports. 
And so just to stick with the bowls for a minute, that advantage is really obvious to me. But if you could explain anticipation skills for me. Yes. So the analogy I usually use is to say, let's take a, a really good schoolboy player or a really good club player. And you put them in a batting net and you put a bowling machine against them and you crank it up to 80 odd miles an hour. They'll do better than you expect because you need good hand-eye coordination and reasonable technique. And, you know, very good club players, very good schoolboy players have got that. You put a test batsman in the next net against a similar bowling machine and you'd be surprised that there isn't more difference because all test players have got good hand-eye coordination and decent techniques. And they'll probably look better than the schoolboy player, but there isn't the difference you would expect given the difference in their levels. Take the bowling machines away and put a test bowler in each of those nets, and suddenly there's a chasm. You know, the schoolboy can't put bat on ball, and the test player, he's not making it look easy, but he can cope. And that's because a lot of what makes the test players special, which makes the, the professional special, happens before the ball comes out of the bowler's hand. And that's their ability to get cues and get tells on the line and the length of the ball and what type of delivery it's going to be before it comes out of the hand. Because at the speeds that you're talking about for professional fast bowlers, you don't have time to ball track. You don't have time to watch the ball come out of the hand, work out where it's going to go, and then decide what shot you're going to play. Those decisions have had to have been made or being made and being refined as the ball is coming out of the bowler's hand. And that's the skill that your club players and your schoolboys don't have because they haven't faced the requisite amount of bowling at that speed and they haven't learned to do it. And the advantage that left-handers have as bowlers is that batsmen have learned those reflexes and those hardwired skills against bowling, which is 90% right-handed. And we know in cricket that if we do, they call them temporal occlusion studies, where you, you show footage and you stop it as the ball's released and get the batsman to watch that and predict where the ball is going to go. And we know that you know even elite batsmen are less good at predicting where the ball will go against left-handed bowlers than they are against right-handed bowlers. And this is repeated across a, a range of sports, tennis, baseball, table tennis. Players are, are less good at predicting where the ball will go against left-handed opponents than they are against right-handed opponents. I won't get you to try and work out what that is, but I'm assuming it's the same way in my head when I try and mirror myself kicking a football left-footed. It goes horribly wrong, and there must be something to do with flipping the image in your head that doesn't particularly work there. But that explains bowlers, and I think that... I mean, I've been writing about the rise of left-arm seamers for, wow, probably since 2008, maybe when I started cricket writing. So that's really, really well covered. We don't talk about left-handed batters as much, I think, and that's why I thought your chapter was really interesting because... There's a natural advantage here, but explain what starts to happen in 1990. You've already talked about how we didn't have many before then, but what starts to happen in 1990 or around that era? So essentially, there is this slow change from the mid-90s to the end of the 2000s, which is the steady rise in the accuracy of umpiring decision-making in test cricket. And so you go from having two home umpires, which means that you've got this vast number of umpires from all over the world umpiring test cricket you then get one independent umpire then two independent umpires and so now you're concentrating all of the umpiring into notionally at least the best dozen umpires in the world and those umpires are getting the best training and the best instruction and the best monitoring and feedback and they're subject to selection so that causes a rise in the quality of the decision making 
Then you get the introduction of DRS, and that causes another significant rise in the quality of the decision-making. And what that does is it increases the advantage that any player or tactic has from the laws of the game. And one of the most obvious advantages that the laws of the game give a certain type of player is the advantage that left-handers have because of the LBW law. So obviously you can't be out if the ball pitches outside leg stump. And about 50% of the balls from a right-arm bowler from over the wicket to a left-handed batsman, sorry, 50% of the balls that would hit the stumps pitch outside leg stump. And we know this from Hawkeye ball tracking. So that means if you look at the percentages of LBWs, you get almost twice as many LBWs when right-arm bowlers are bowling to right-handers as you do when you get right-arm bowlers bowling to left-handers. And that's almost like a tax on the right-handed batsmen that the left-handers don't have to pay. And so because certainly through the 90s and the 2000s and you know up until quite recently, most of the bowling by right-arm seamers to left-handers was from over the wicket. That meant that they had a significant advantage for the first 30 overs in Test cricket. So for the first 30 overs in Test cricket, left-handers averaged five runs more per wicket than right-handers did this century. That causes this quite prodigious rise in the number of left-handers in Test cricket. So you go from that base level of 15 to 25%, and it rises and rises and rises, and it rises to almost parity in terms of top-order batsmen. And in terms of openers, it goes past parity and you now have more left-handed openers. While they always had this protection in the law, the quality of umpiring decision was too blunt an instrument to give them a significant advantage. But as the quality of umpiring decisions rises, the advantage that they get rises and rises. So you go from 15 to 25% up to near parity, so nearly as many left-handers as right-handers. And in the top order amongst openers, it actually goes past 50%. And you then start to see a difference between the countries which are seam-dominated. So in Australia, it gets up to 80%. In England, it's 70%. And the countries where spin is the dominant form of bowling in test cricket. So India, Pakistan, much, much lower. And in fact, in India and Pakistan, you get an under-representation of left-handed openers at test level compared to their first-class cricket. Whereas in England and Australia, left-handers come to dominate those top three spots. So the only thing that you didn't mention in this, and probably a lot of this has to do with the fact that you were using Hawkeye data, is the fact that bowling fundamentally changed in the 80s and 90s as well. So up until that point, outswing bowling was basically the normal skill. So if you're a right-arm outswing bowler, you can pitch the ball on the stumps and then straight into the left-hander. And that disappeared because the West Indies came along and they were like, well, we're just going to pick very tall, very fast bowlers because people will remain tall and fast all day, whereas yep. the ball will stop swinging. And then the umpiring is really interesting as well. So there was almost like this convergence of, I suppose, better umpiring than DRS specifically. And even before DRS, you'd be able to see in your numbers the same way I have that the decisions start to get better even before DRS, partly because umpires are training themselves on what they're seeing on the TVs. Yeah. And so there was this real convergence. If all that is the case, why do you think it took so long for right-arm bowlers to start coming around the wicket consistently the way they have in the last, what, three or four years? A lot of it is inertia. A lot of it is that it is a different skill. And I think also 
it's only demonstrably better for a certain type of bowler. And that tends to be the bowler who, first of all, who can cope with it technically, going around the wicket and making that change. And secondly, whose natural shape goes into the right-hander and away from the left-hander. Because it's that ability to swing the ball back onto the line of the stumps that gives you an advantage in terms of LBW decisions. And that's actually why, you know, I, I think one of the received pieces of wisdom that we've tackled in the book is that there was always this idea that away swing was more effective because it challenged the outside edge. But that doesn't account for the fact that for left-arm bowlers, the most successful shape is back into the right-hander. And it's actually far more to do with the geometry of where you're letting the ball go and getting the ball to pitch and hit something like in line. Because as soon as you do that, if your natural shape does that for you, then you gain a big advantage in terms of a lot of dismissals. You can challenge both sides of the bat, if that makes sense. No, no, it does. So one of the other things that you looked at here was left arm seam versus left hand batters and right arm seam versus right hand batters. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this is basically making the same point in a slightly different way. So I call them regular and goofy. So when you've got right to right or left to left, that gives a big advantage to the bowler because you get about twice as many LBWs basically in those combinations than you do when you go right to left or left to right. And so then you can combine those two effects that we've talked about already. You've got the regular versus goofy giving you an advantage or a disadvantage in terms of LBWs. And you've got the natural advantage that the left arm seamer has got because he's difficult to anticipate and difficult for the batsman to predict. And so you find that actually the lowest averages are left arm to left hand because that's the perfect storm for a batsman. He's got a bowler he can't predict and he's got no protection from LBW. And the highest averages are for left-handed batsmen against a right-arm bowler because there he's got a bowler he can predict and he's got the protection of the LBW. And then the left to right and the right to right come out about evens. One of the interesting things, I think there'll be people listening to this going, okay, you take LBW away, but it doesn't make that big a difference. So my biggest theory in test cricket over the last 10 years has been if you can take one dismissal away, you can go from averaging 45 to maybe 55, you know, if you can take a regular one away. And Steve Smith is maybe the most living embodiment of that because the way he bats, he kind of takes the slip fielders and the wicketkeeper out of play at a certain point. Or you have to bowl so wide that it changes the game again for the bowlers. Is that essentially what we're saying here is if you can take away, you know, whether it's LBW, bold or caught behind, they're basically the three major forms of dismissal. Once you do that, there's just a huge tactical advantage that flows onto the rest of the game that I'm assuming then there are other advantages for the left-hander that come off that. Yeah, batsmen are always trying to manage their risk in terms of how they set up. And that's the main advantage that good analysis and good research gives a batsman. It gives them the information to shift certain elements of his setup to do exactly that, to try and minimise the one dismissal that he can minimise or the one that he's, he's, he's going to be most concerned about against this bowler. That's the genius of Smith's method. And you're, at the moment, you're seeing a lot of batsmen in, in English county cricket trying to copy that because it forces the bowler to abandon one of those modes. Like you say, they either have to abandon the Knicks to the cordon or they have to bowl wide enough that they're abandoning bold and LBW. They can't keep all three dismissals on the table in sort of one method of attack. So, so far we're talking about seam bowls. We'll talk about opening batters very briefly. So in your book, you say that since 2000, Australia's 84% of openers have been left-handed. 
which is really mm-hmm. interesting because I remember the argument against Langer and Hayden batting together because they're both left-handers. So many people didn't like that. And this is in Australia, which is the most left-hand dominant batting culture ever. And I've always felt that and I'd never looked it up. So it was great to be able to read that in your book. But then you see the other side, which I found really interesting was Pakistan. And we will get to India in a moment. But Pakistan, 52% mm. of their openers have been left-handed and 5% of the rest of the order. Yeah. Just to explain those percentages, those are the percentages of innings played that have been played by left-handers. So it's not the worst sort of 80% left-handed openers, but the innings played have been, you know, and likewise with the Pakistan stat. This takes us on to the sort of the flip side of the coin, which is against spin. So against pace bowlers, and therefore for the first 30 overs of most test matches, left-handed batsmen have a significant advantage over right-handed batsmen. But then when you look at spin-dominated countries or the middle overs where you get a significant proportion of spin bowled, you start to see the flip side, and that is that that suddenly the right-handed batsmen have a significant advantage over the left-handed batsmen against spin. There are possible explanations for this that by far the strongest and, and the one that I hold with is basically coming back to your first point about what percentage of the population is actually left-handed and bowls left-handed. And what that means is that for a finger spinner who can turn the ball away from the batsman's bat has always been more effective in test cricket and that continues to be the case and that is you know there's no mystery there about why that's the case and it is true and it's it's strongly true if you look at the numbers 90% of the people who try to bowl spin are right-handed and therefore the best right-handed finger spinners are likely to be better than the best left-handed finger spinners just through sheer weight of numbers and we've all coached junior cricket or schoolboy cricket, and it's always easier to find an off-spinner than it is to find a good left-armer. You know, you find a good left-armer, that, that's a gift as a coach. And so what that means is the majority of spin, even though it's against majority right-handed batsmen, the majority of spin bowled in test cricket is right-arm, is off-spin. And also, they tend to be more effective on average. That means that the left-handers are facing far more off-spin and far better bowling than the right-handers are facing left arms. And so you see actually quite a significant advantage to right-handed batsmen against spin in general in test cricket. So that means, of course, that when you get to those parts of the innings or those countries where spin dominates and spin takes the majority of the wickets, the left-handers go from having a significant advantage to having a significant disadvantage. And so you see that things like 5% of Pakistan middle order being left-handed, quite a small percentage of Indian batsmen at test level being left-handed. And you actually see it in both of those countries, you see a decline from first-class cricket to test cricket. So in every other country, you get more left-handers in test cricket than you get in first-class cricket. In those two countries, you see a drop from first-class cricket to test cricket in terms of the number of left-handers that they pick. And I don't think at any point anyone is sort of understanding the dynamics and the patterns here and making their decisions based on those. I think they're just picking the people who make runs. It's an evolutionary trait that's going on and revealing these advantages and disadvantages rather than a tactical decision being made by teams. This is T20. We will get to white ball cricket in a moment. But Mm. when I look at T20, I did a big thing with finger spinners recently against left-handers and right-handers and spinning the ball away. 
It's quite clear to me that there are right-handers who are very good against the ball spinning away. That is a thing that happens. You will come across those players. Again. I think Cameron Akmal off the top of my head. Weirdly, I know Virat Kohli struggled with leg spin, but I think he might have been another one that, that had a very, very good record when the ball was spinning away. Rohit Sharma. Uh, Rohit Sharma might have been another one. You're right. When you look at left-handers with the ball spinning away, it doesn't exist. I mean, there just doesn't seem <laughs> to be any left-handers who handle that. You think that's purely just because right-arm finger spinners are just that much better than left-arm finger spinners? Yes. I mean, and, you know, in fairness, the right-arm finger spinner is, is almost disappearing from T20 cricket these days, isn't he? They all either turn the ball both ways, like a Ravi Ashwin, or they're essentially a batsman who bowls some offspin yeah. for you. I think that's right. I, th- I think, again, it's the difference in the natural quality levels of the two types of player. There may be more to it than that. I know there's some really interesting theories about right-handed left-hand batsmen and left-handed left-hand batsmen that they hit the ball slightly differently and and to different areas. I've never been able to dig deep enough into the numbers to confirm that, but that might be part of it. Because I think that's the element that you get with the right-handed batsman who is stronger against the ball turning away. It tends to be guys with quite orthodox classical techniques who like to stay leg side of the ball and open up the offside. And the guys who do that really well actually then struggle more against the ball turning back in. That's my sort of take on that type of player. And you probably get less of that type of left-handed batsman in T20 cricket for whatever reasons. We'll get onto white ball cricket in a minute, but just that one last thing about left-handers is, so I have two sons who are both going through cricket all-stars at the moment. Uh, one is a pure right-hander. The other one is a left-hander who's a little bit ambidextrous. The other day he said, I could throw both arms, which I didn't realize, but good for yeah. you, show off. <laughs> so I taught both of them to bat left-handed because my theory was that there was an advantage in batting left-handed, which now I realize mm-hmm. I'm going to have to spend a lot more time training them how to face spin, but I'll worry about that later. And also for the right-hander, I just figured that I don't think we're 100% sure which we have decided that one side is right-handed, one side is left-handed, but we have a two-handed grip in cricket and also the hand that is stronger is the other one so i mean you sort of briefly talked about that before so you david warner bowls right arm and is right-handed as far as i'm aware and bats left-handed and i think adam gilchrist was another there's a lot of them throughout cricket do you think it's possible that Mm. players have just stood on the wrong side of the bat very possible very possible it was one of the most interesting things i watched was my then six or seven year old daughter having her first proper tennis lesson with a very good tennis pro and the first thing he got her to do was to jump and turn around as she jumped and he watched her do it a few times and then he asked her the other way and then he did a few other tests that I can't remember but but it was all about working out which direction of rotation she was most comfortable with and that was when he then said okay she'd hit a few balls before that but not many and she'd hit them right-handed and she said no I'm, I'm happy with her playing right-handed so I think there is some slightly discounted theories on eye dominance as well I don't think it's as simple as left or right-handed does that make sense I think yeah with both of my kids they both started in tennis which sort of muddied the waters and had two-handed backhands so that made that side look more fluent but I, I just threw balls at them both ways round and, and picked the one I thought looked more natural and looked cleaner It's funny you say tennis because my kids both do tennis as well. And I've noticed that my right-handed son who bats left-handed, because of the tennis backhand, that is just his normal swing now. Like, even if I worked out later on that he was got him on the wrong side, I'm not sure if he'd go back to that because he's just used to that. So there's that element as well of what feels most comfortable to him. When I've tried to get him Mm. back right-handed just for fun, 
he doesn't seem to know where to go. He just has this natural left-handed swing. The whole thing's very interesting. But let's go to white ball cricket. So so far, almost everything we've talked about has been test cricket, other than me occasionally dragging us into T20 nonsense. But how does this all play out in white ball cricket? This is one of the aspects that I think supplies quite strong evidence that everything we've talked about so far is correct. Because obviously all the trends we're talking about, they're there in the data. All the evidence that we've laid out so far, it's it's all there. The explanations that we're adding on top of that, that there are explanations, aren't they? So one of the correlating points for us is what happens when you shorten the game. So what you see is you see a rise in the dominance of left arm bowlers. So we're talking just about pace bowlers now. You see a rise in the dominance of left arm bowlers as you shorten the game. And you see a decline in the advantage or the numbers of left-handed openers as you shorten the game. If our explanations so far are correct, then that makes sense, and that's exactly what you would expect to see. So in terms of the bowling, as you shorten the game, batsmen get more and more aggressive. They play more and more attacking shots. And an attacking shot, an aggressive shot against pace bowling, requires an earlier decision. So you have to commit to the shot that you're going to play and where you're going to hit the ball and make contact with the ball. You've got to make that decision earlier in the process because you've got to swing the bat for longer and harder. That puts even more emphasis on your anticipation of where the ball is going to go. So attacking shots means an earlier decision, means more reliance on your anticipation, and therefore the left-arm bowlers, who are harder to predict, who are harder to anticipate against, they then gain an increased advantage as the game is shorter and as the batsmen get more aggressive. And that's exactly what you see. So you, you see about half as many, again, left-arm bowlers in T20 cricket as in Test cricket. and their performance, even though there's half as many again, they still outperform the right-arm bowlers. And as part of this sort of natural evolution then, as you've already said, like off-spin is a sort of, maybe not dying off, but there's a lot more part-time off-spin or off-spinners who can bat. And then you've got, I think I had a look at this, about seven guys around the world who bowl off-spin as their sort of their main skill. So, you know, Gareth Batty type players in T20 cricket, there just aren't Mm. that many that do it. Does that mean that there will be a natural rise in left-handers in the middle order in white ball cricket as well then? I think there will in places where the spinners bowl a lot of the overs in the middle. So I was at Multan in the, the PSL a, a couple of seasons ago, and we realized that there basically wasn't an off spinner at the PSL. There were some left-arm finger spinners, there were leggies, and there were occasional sort of Mohammed Hafiz batsmen who bowled some off spin. But there were no specialist off spinners. And so we picked a batting lineup that had either four or five left-handers in the top six, depending on selection. You will see an overcorrection in the other direction, I think, as all these things are in homeostasis, something everyone's following trends. So I think that will be the case, yeah. And there's just one last series that I wanted you to talk about. So Australia versus India in test matches. So you mm. basically said that they're the most home-dominated series. And I was trying to think if there was anything else I could come up with, but A, they probably play each other more than anyone else. Um, and, you know, you look at the numbers and it makes sense. Australia wins in Australia, India wins in India, and it's only fluke occurrences or more modern times when India's become a better team where that has changed. You put that down to basically the fact that Australia turns up in India with so many left-handers and the fact that India turns up in Australia with so many right-handers and there's a natural advantage for the bowlers in each country. I know it's more than that, but... (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was one factor. There are the extremes of the sport in terms of conditions. You've got probably the most seam-dominated country and the most spin-dominated country. 
and therefore they're always going to struggle to win in each other's backyard. But one of the corollaries of that is that you often see four out of the top six left-handers in Australian batting lineups, and India have actually put a top eight, all of whom are right-handed on the field at, in Test cricket. So that, that certainly doesn't help, and it only makes the job harder. Thank you very much. The book is called Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works. You wrote it with some other guy. We're not going to mention his name, of course, but I'm sure it's written there in the title. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Cheers, Jared. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Crickets.